What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. Special episode for you today. My friend and someone who I'm sure many of you are familiar with, Mr. Brandon Quidham, hit me up recently because he's going to be appearing on the Psychedelic Salon podcast with Lorenzo Haggerty next Monday, live. And um, as many of you know, and as Brandon knows, uh, I'm, I, I, I speak frequently and freely about my uh, support and interest in psychedelic substances uh, and the potential benefits to be derived from their responsible use. And Brandon is in a, a similar category, a similar mind about those substances as myself. And we've talked about it several times. And so he hit me up a couple of days ago and said he'd like to come on uh, to kind of sharpen his, his uh, pitch before going on the Psychedelic Salon podcast because one of the people working um, at the Psychedelic Salon podcast uh, is a, I don't think they're a closet Bitcoiner. I'm not sure if they're a closet Bitcoiner, but they're a Bitcoiner. And they wanted to get Brandon on to try to orange pill some of the people in the psychedelic community that listen to that podcast. And so he wanted to come on uh, with me to kind of explore the similarities and the synthesis between Bitcoin and psychedelics before going on that podcast next week, which, of course, I was only too happy to oblige. For those of you that don't know Brandon, he is the author of the Phenomenal series, which is called The Mycelium of Money. It's a four-part series, extremely well-received um, by many people. Uh, the first part is Bitcoin is a decentralized organism. That's the mycelium. Bitcoin is a social creature, the mushroom. Bitcoin is the antivirus to uncertainty, the medicine. And Bitcoin is a catalyst for human evolution, symbiosis. Like I said, phenomenal series, extremely well-received. If you haven't checked them out yet, I highly recommend you do so. Um, just an amazing analogy and really helps you understand both mycelium and Bitcoin on a deeper level. Anyways, that is all to say that Brandon is a phenomenal guy. And if you're not following him or his work already, you should definitely go and do so as soon as you're finished listening to this show. We always have a great time when we jam on this subject matter. Really enjoyed this discussion. I hope you guys like it as well. Let's do it. Brandon, good to be with you again, man. It's always a pleasure. Likewise. Um, so the conversation today, the genesis basically of this conversation, I guess part one is we're both um, strong advocates for the responsible use of uh, psychedelic substances uh, for people when they decide that it's uh, you know reasonable and uh, it's when it's when they decide it's something they want to do. So when people find it on their own, I think we're we're both advocates of that. And I think we'll break into our individual stories to that in this discussion. But you hit me up because uh, you're going to be appearing on Psychedelic Salon, right? Correct. Right. And so that is one of the main podcasts in the psychedelic community. Um, and you're going to be appearing on that in a couple of weeks. And you wanted to come on and kind of, uh, you know, sharpen your, your lingo because, uh, one, I think, you know, the two communities have a lot of overlap in terms of how they think about things and the clarity that actually both of these things that we're engaging in both Bitcoin and psychedelics seem to provide to people. Um, and two, because we're always interested in uh, orange billing people to the extent we can. And I think a strong performance on your behalf might have that effect to that community. So um, thanks again for coming on, man. And uh, I'm looking forward to this discussion. 
Yeah, man, my pleasure. I think you framed it up really nicely there. The only thing I would add is um, someone from the psychedelic slotting community had read one of the mycelium Bitcoin pieces and said, okay, this is a good angle. I've been trying to orange pill the psychedelic salon people for so long, maybe you can come on and do it. And so it's another example of a Bitcoiner hiding, you know, fourth pillar or whatever people say, somewhere in, in the system and they're yeah. going to do their best to use their community to, <laughs> to make it happen. So I love it. And this is one of the things that, another one of the things that gives me confidence that the resistance or you know, this is inevitable because there's sleeper cell Bitcoiners everywhere that are just waiting for their moment to pounce, you know, like, and, and you give them that moment in, in the writing that you've done and in the way that you're relating these two things, you give that sleeper cell in the psychedelic salon the opportunity to be like, that's our guy. This is what I pounce. Like, I'm going to get him to come on the show and talk to all of our people about Bitcoin. So, and I failed to mention also, man, um, huge fan of your work. I always love when we get the opportunity to speak. I'm so grateful that you, you know, had the epiphany and then put in the hard work and time to actually draw this analogy uh, of mycelium and the fungal, you know, universe to Bitcoin. And uh, obviously, it's been really well received. And I think it's just another example of people being so self-motivated to express some aspect of themselves uh, into Bitcoin and finding that thing that's uniquely a part of their, uh, you know matrix or understanding or passions and finding a way to we weave it into the Bitcoin narrative in a way that's not forced in a way that, you know, genuinely um, seems incredibly apt. So, you know, I'm just uh, grateful for all the work you've done. Oh man, really appreciate that. And I, I feel the same right back to you. We've, we've said this before, but I feel a kindred spirit, a kinship <laughs> with you uh, with so many overlapping things and I think Bitcoin does a good job of bringing people together that inherently have overlapping values. It doesn't have to be psychedelics, obviously, but there's some fundamental tether that brings us together and makes it really easy with that one thing in common to, you know, discuss the tangential interests. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this, I think, maybe the first time we spoke, or it might have been with a couple of the other boys, Brady and Guy. Um, but we, we discussed the concept that, you know, financial sovereignty is something that is uh, foundational to Bitcoin, right? Taking back that financial sovereignty. And um, it's always been my position, I think we discussed it uh, on that uh, show, that psychedelics is a form of taking back your cognitive or psychological sovereignty. It's, it's kind of deprogramming and deconditioning from the things that you may have accumulated over a lifetime and everyone to varying degrees, of course. Um, and it's allowing you, if for a brief moment, or it has the potential to, I don't want to make uh, sweeping generalizations about what kind of experience is delivered, but it, it allows the potential for an experience that um, permits you to see uh, things with a greater degree of clarity or from a different perspective, uh, uniquely for the first time, or at least that perspective is unique. And we'll break into all the ins and outs of it, but just to say as an umbrella that um, that aspect of it when you come out of the experience and you're, you're kind of uh, your mind is expanded in that regard and that you were kind of forced to see things from a different perspective, I think shakes people up just enough to realize that the way they see things doesn't mean that's the way things are exclusively. There are other ways of understanding things. There are other uh, ways of seeing reality. And I think uh, what psychedelics does is allow you to do that for the first time. And then it causes you to think, 
Well, then it makes you realize maybe I need, maybe, you know, what my default opinion is on things is not the truth. And it causes you to keep going and searching for that in all different capacities. So I think um, financial sovereignty is essential uh, and is such a great thing that we have that now. And cognitive sovereignty or liberty uh, goes hand in hand with that. And I think the more that we can, uh, more that we can promote that, uh, the better. I completely agree. And I like the phrase Brady uses with default Keynesian, sort of where we inherit that monetary worldview and you don't even know it's a worldview because you take it for granted. It's sort of sub-perceptual that money comes from state. And I think we need to come up with a term for uh, default um, consciousness or you know your, your normative cognitive bias, whatever we want to call it, where you don't know that you're living in this loop. We sort of have our days that are 80, 90% the same every day. And I like to think of it as if you're sledding down a hill when you're a kid, right? It's fresh snow, you take the sled down. And after you go a couple of times, the sled wants to stay in the groove you've made. Mm-hmm. It's the least path of resistance. And that's kind of how our brains work, where if, our, if we go to work, we just sort of live Groundhog's Day every day. Our brain goes, okay, we don't want to waste calories doing all this other stuff. So you sort of atrophy parts of your brain you're not using and you reinforce that groove. Um, And neuroscience is starting to corroborate this now with what's called the default mode network, which I'm sure we'll get to in regards to psychedelics. But what the psychedelics do is they temporarily disable that default mode network. So the sled can now take a new path down the hill. And what that allows you to do is just sort of pause and observe your life with a slightly more objective view. You're not necessarily tainted by your repetition. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change your life, but it gives you this pattern interrupt, this brief pause to say, shit, everything I thought I knew, um, I don't have as much confidence in what I thought or a certain aspect of my personality. That's not necessarily a given because I stepped out of that mode for a, a brief moment. And all it takes is that interrupt. And then you can sort of rebuild. And it's the same thing when you see the light, quote, quote unquote, uh, with Bitcoin. The first time it really clicks, you, you, you're changed. You know, you can't look at things the same after that. It usually compels people to drop what they're doing and study for months on end or years on end. And it's the same thing the first time you have a serious psychedelic experience where everything you thought you knew is maybe not what it seems. And I I grew up in a religious household. I never really bought into the ideals. I'm kind of a stubborn rebel, like poking holes in the process, but I went through everything. I memorized all the shit. And then I became sort of a hardened atheist as I grew up and sort of left my family's household, living on my own, going to college, et cetera. And sort of taking pride in that those religious ideals were stupid they're simple-minded, they're sort of religious dogma more than anything real. And then you have a couple psychedelic experiences and you go, okay, I I shouldn't have such a rigid view on reality. There is more here. And now I've I've sort of come back into a balance where I don't necessarily follow any religion, but the teachings in those traditions are apt. They are manuals for life. They are valuable. They are useful. And spirituality is inherent to our species. You know, I think we can argue that most of the great religious traditions now came from religious insight, first felt, uh, firsthand felt religious experience through things most likely like fasting or dancing, drumming, um, 
eating the right plants or mushrooms or any of these other tools and you have this photo novelty, you have this insight, and then you sort of build a structure around it because they do have tremendous teachings. And so, yeah, I guess full circle, that, that is what the psychedelic experience did for me. It made me a more well-rounded person. And I'll, I'll stop there, but there's a long list of personal benefits that I, I've, I've experienced. Yeah, well, let's definitely put a pin in that because I think it's important to elucidate some of those benefits because one of the questions that often comes to me when I you know, talk about this subject matter, people say, well, yeah, but how has it improved your life? And so I think that's an important component of it. But to, back to the point about sovereignty and what you mentioned about grooves, I couldn't agree more. And actually, the first time I ever had a strong and accidental psychedelic experience. So um, basically, oh, like double dosed myself i was going for recreation you know with the fellas and it turned into something far different than that um but what one of the things that terrified me was the pattern of my life like on a very physical level like basically <clears throat> the grooves as you say that my routine like my the, the the grooves of my body's movement through space it was basically from my home to my university to the gym to a bar to my home and my and like 99% of my movement was that and it terrified me because I thought my god I like I exist in this amazing world in this unknown infinite universe and my you know 99% of my movements and my experience of life is in this tiny tiny groove of experience and for whatever reason and I don't think it's hard to imagine why that was terrifying at the time and you know when we talk about cognitive and financial sovereignty and liberty, the cognitive one is far more insidious because we don't realize the degree to which we depend on our name, family, nationality, sports team, sense of fashion, you know, fill in the blank for constructing how we see ourselves and who we are. All those things give us comfort to go out in the world and think, okay, like it's more or well put together. I've made sense of this. I put the pieces in place enough that I can go forward and actually operate in this crazy mess of a world. And obviously there's uses to that. But I think what's where it goes astray is when you don't recognize how you're using those various associations and identities and dependencies or, or what have you. And so what, what I think the psychedelic experience is useful for is becoming aware of that. Like I'll, I still have a sports team. I still support like this or that. I still, you know, I'll uh, playfully rah rah for Newfoundland because I'm such a hardcore Newfie at heart, right? And I'm a proud Newfoundlander. Um, but it's all in the right perspective now. I know what that is, and so I think a lot of people, and I think perhaps some of the reason why we see so much turmoil and aggression and divisiveness in the world is because people are taking all those things that they've used to construct their identity and they're believing that it's who they are. And if other people have used other things to construct their identity, to, to, to construct who they are, then there's a lot of, there, there's many places at which they could uh, be against each other. And so um, I think the psychedelic experience is so important for cognitive liberty because it, it, it unchains you from all those points of your identity. And I know this, you know, we could go down uh, somewhat of an esoteric road, but I guess that's why we're here. But I think the psychedelic experience ultimately allows you to experience for a brief period and not completely, but very, very closely, um, 
undifferentiated consciousness. So you, you, you kind of get the sense that you're just awareness for a brief period of time. If you can let go of all the different elements of yourself that you use to construct your identity, obviously you're still a physical body having this experience and that, that tethers you to a point of perspective. But people talk about ego death a lot. And a big part of that is all the different things that you use to self-reflect or self-identify on who you are. All those get shown to be facades and they all get stripped away and you feel incredibly naked and insecure. And I think you can go two ways. You can be terrified by that and shut down and try to resist the experience and you know, you're going to have a bad night or you can let go into that and, and embrace that. And once you do, you know, that's where the kind of ineffable, ineffable aspects of the experience come in because you gain access to a state of consciousness that is extremely difficult to articulate, but one that I think we could characterize as, you know, or oversimplify, but characterize broadly as undifferentiated. You're not associating with all those, all those identity markers or makeups that you used to before. And th those are put on the shelf for a second. You get to experience um, consciousness without those things. And it's beautiful and wonderful and amazing. And then you come back down and the next day you're Brandon again, you're John again, you pile all those things back on, but you, you, you have a twinkle in your eye now. You know that that stuff is not really who you are. There's something far deeper that characterizes fundamentally who you are. And all that stuff is just window dressing that you can play with, you can move around. You don't have to become so, um, you know, so attached to. And that's why I think it's important because that's the liberty aspect, not being so attached to all that stuff. And, um, you know, we were talking about grooves as on a personal level. But as you say, when this happens on a, on a civilization level or a society level, then we get grooves of behavior. If, if, if we continue to be tethered to those identity markers, we get grooves socially. And then you get one big groove socially over here and you get one big groove socially over here. And of course, there's going to be conflict between the two if those two don't recognize that what they're really fighting over is, uh, you know, is illusory in some way, you know? Absolutely, man. I think you nailed that last one. Um, it feels almost like going back to the grooves, there's two, two grooves, let's just say left and right politically, it doesn't matter. And those grooves are in a two-dimensional space. And consuming the psychedelics or achieving that state of mind, you can look down on those two and you see the little ants running in their groove. And you realize that they are ants in a cage running in a groove. And just simply being aware of that for a brief moment lets you step out of it. And I like to think of it as, uh, and I've had this experience most dramatically with ayahuasca, but afterwards feeling so light as if those, like the backpack's off. I'm not carrying the weight of past struggles, grudges, you know, little interpersonal things I didn't even know I was holding on to or aspects of my personality that I've allowed to be too dominant. And... <clears throat> Yeah, just being able to separate yourself from the, the grooves that you've built on yourself, taking the backpack off and realizing I can put the backpack back on, but it's not going to be a backpack that's chained to me. It's not my destiny to be that. And I think a good way to look at this, and I'm not sure who came up with this, but you are not your mind. And we always think that our mind is in charge. And you go sit down and meditate for five minutes, haven't done it in a while. Your mind goes crazy. It's a little puppy. You can't sit still. And that's not ultimately who we are, right? Our minds evolved as a tool to help us 
survive and adapt to niches in our environment. It's very useful, but it's also a, a slave master. And we don't want to be a slave to our neurochemistry. Like the molecules move around and they say, eat, sleep, fuck. They say, um, you know, what all these different drives we have coming from neurochemistry, coming from our mind. And you don't have to be uh, driven by that. You can have this brief pause of awareness, notice, notice something, and then turn left instead of turn right. Or be aware of it and, and go along with it anyways. But like you said, with liberty, uh, with a detachment. Um, and I think that's an incredibly powerful thing that spills over in all aspects of her life. Yeah. Yeah. That's the liberty piece, right? Knowing that you're not the thought, you're the one observing the thought. And I know this has been said in a million other books, spiritual and otherwise over the course of, of history, but psychedelics. And as you said at the beginning, rhythmic dancing, drumming, ordeal, poisons, pain, you know, all these things can elicit that detachment where you kind of are forced to realize that there, there's a space in between your thoughts and the one observing the thoughts. Cause most people I think assume that it's just like that. And psychedelics are a rather uh, both powerful and uh, convenient way of cracking the door open a jar and realizing, Oh, you know, there's, I'm, I'm not my thoughts. There's a, there's something behind that. There's an observer behind that. And it'll, you know, perhaps it doesn't leave the, the crack open the door, maybe it blasts open the door and you get to really swimming around in the space in between, which is, which is wonderful. And there's so much to be gained from doing that. But, you know, as we were saying, I think part of the problem that we have today as a humanity, I guess, is everyone associating with whatever kind of identity markers, window dressing they were either given at birth or as a result of culture, family conditioning, um, using them to construct an, a rigid identity and then just de facto being against people that have constructed an identity based on other window dressings or other conditionings or other environmental, uh, you know, uh, factors and, and things like that. And unless we, um, unless we, and that's the sovereignty part, right? The space in between. And unless we realize that, unless we detach from all those things that, you know, basically our ego uses to get through life, then, uh, you know, we're, we're always going to have problems. And um, I'm hopeful that actually Bitcoin does address these in certain ways, though it's not clear at the outset. But I think um, there's many ways that it does. And maybe we can break into that. But um, or maybe we can break into that, that now. What are your thoughts on that premise that Bitcoin kind of uh, has that effect? Yeah, I think it definitely does. I, I, when I think of my relationship with Bitcoin, it, it's sort of um, it sort of rattles your assumptions. It, it shakes up your worldview a little bit and you realize that, okay, money is foundational. It's a, it's a tool. We've been using it for a long time. And how the money is currently used in our society has a huge impact on individuals. And most people are unaware of that impact. And so as soon as you glimpse behind the curtain and you see the man behind the curtain, which was about the Federal Reserve, by the way, um, I'm blank. Wizard of Oz. Yeah, the Wizard of Oz. The wizard is the Federal Reserve. Most people don't know that. Really? Yeah, you see the man behind the curtain. You can look up the historical reference. And wow. seeing a peek behind the curtain makes you realize that, okay, you know, what else is going on here? Money's being used against the average person. Maybe not conspiratorially, just, you know, incentives lead it that way. And so you're armed with a new perspective that what you thought you knew was not true. 
And I think that leads people to start digging deeper and saying what else isn't going on, which leads people to be ahead of the COVID thing in you know, January, Bitcoiners are talking about it. And it, it sort of inspires curiosity and a desire to take back control and find out what's actually true. Like if what we take for granted is fundamentally untrue, to me at least, that's just a little thread to follow. And that thread leads to something else. Then you find more people who are on a similar path of pulling threads. And yeah, to me, it, it's almost an awakening type process. Gigi mentions this. He had a very serious awakening process in and around the honey yeah. badger. And I yeah, I, I just think it's a nice thread. They, they're both similar threads ending up towards truth. And I think humans seek truth. We want truth. And it's not easy to find. It's not, it's not easy to accept sometimes. But I think fundamentally, um, there is a drive for truth. Absolutely. And it's funny you frame it that way because I actually came to uh, psychedelics pretty much as a result of what you were just referring to by I uh, came to study, always been curious about money and that kind of stuff was a gold bug back in the day. And I came to understand how our current system of money works. And it just, it kind of shocked me that, or I, I was so curious, like what more could these people that benefit the most from this, let's call it, you know, the group of people behind central banks of the world or something like that. And what could motivate them to want even more wealth and power than they already possess? Because, you know, effectively they have infinite, you know, relative to everybody else, you know, uh, uh, resources. And I thought like, there's got to be some other motivating factor. And, you know, uh, back in the day, you know, 10 plus years ago, a good YouTube rabbit hole could take you into, into some pretty dark and strange places. And some are, some I'm grateful for and some I probably could have avoided. But one of them was, I, like I started looking at wealth and power, uh, pe wealth and powerful people throughout history and kind of what they got up to. Like what was the thing that they prioritized? What was, you know, once they had, whether it was a pharaoh in Egypt or people in ancient Greece or, or where have you, they have the wealth, they have the power. What did they pursue after that? And there's a lot of, in a lot of places, uh, there were either sacred rites or secret mysteries, or there was, uh, you know, rituals of various kinds that seemed to involve altering consciousness in some way. And some of those, call it secret societies and or religions, some of them prioritized um, or I, I guess interpreted it as convening with, you know, a divine entity. Others uh, didn't put those kinds of labels on it and just, you know, kind of termed it as, uh, I guess, in their own terms, altering their consciousness uh, because they thought there was a benefit in doing so. But um, that really interested me. And I thought, what is all this about? Like, what, what are those people doing at the Eleusinian Mysteries? And only the wealthy and powerful can go and have this experience. I mean, what's that about? Like, could, could just be an orgy where they get together and like, hey, let's fuck. We're all rich and powerful. But in, in many cases around the world and in many societies, it seems like it was something more than that. And so that actually led me to um, reading Graham Hancock's book, Supernatural, and reading a lot of, of the other books available at the time. And deciding to go down to the rainforest for a number of months and, you know, learn about ayahuasca, spend some time with uh, a shaman there and learn as much as I could and have those experiences. And that, you know, kind of set me off on, on that, on the particular journey with psychedelics, but very much related. And this is why I love this discussion and why I'm so eager to hear your discussion 
on Psychedelic Salon because it's so very much related to how I came to Bitcoin because it was through questioning the money system. That's how I came to psychedelics. And, and you know, to see a synthesis emerge between the two and having the money system inquiry lead all the way to something like Bitcoin, you know, it's just such a beautiful overlap. So I'm wondering for you, did you, you know, what was your impetus behind discovering the psychedelic rabbit hole? Yeah, let's see. I was in, let's see, I was 22. The first time I had any experience with psychedelics, I had cannabis and alcohol before that. And I was working at Oracle, first job out of college selling software. This was sort of what I thought my life was leading up to be. Um, business person, you know, that's my identity. And I got in that role and it just, it just wasn't, you know. From, from the outside, everyone was like, wow, you're doing great. And yes, I'm making money and, and doing the things. And it did look good from the outside. But it felt hollow to me. It was. It ended up just being another challenge, another thing to attack with my ego to set a goal, hit a goal, feel good about it. You do that a couple quarters in, and you realize that if this is the rest of my life, everyone said, "Oh, do this, and you'll go to college. Do this, and you'll get a job. Do this, and do this, do this." And there's there's nowhere to be. There's no end goal. You didn't arrive anywhere. I didn't feel satisfied with that life, and I think that was the undercurrent. And I, I decided to try MDMA and mushrooms within a, a couple months period. And the mushrooms actually were uneventful the first time. However, it did let me step out of my reality and, and sort of like stop being so serious. I would, I'd probably say that was the big lesson. And, you know, it's okay to be silly. You know, why do you take yourself so seriously? Like, just relax. <laughs> and it fundamentally changed me, but it's such, it's such an obvious thing. It doesn't sound like some crazy transformation. Um, however, I would say the first couple MDMA experiences were even more impactful for me at the time, where I grew up in a household where I had a lot of high expectations. Um, so this leads to grades, this leads to captain of the sports teams and working hard and just very strong expectations from like a strong father figure. Yeah. And that led to me having really strong expectations on myself. And I didn't even actually understand that so much until, you know, two hours after consuming MDMA for the first time, where all of a sudden I had a bit more empathy for other people. And it's very easy to be open in who I am and, you know, remove the ego kind of filters. But the real transformation was being kind and gentle to myself and realizing that it's okay that you're not always manly it's okay that you don't always achieve or that you can you can show weakness and that sort of just gave me the feminine side of myself and it's okay to embrace that also instead of shun that or push it away and so to me that was a really important thing for my general well-being is sort of mirroring the masculine and feminine and yeah just being more kind to myself and that's something i i think that's among the top maybe three things i've taken from all psychedelic experiences and um, I don't necessarily pursue that, that chemical now. Um, I do occasionally. I find it to be an incredible bonding experience. So if I'm with the right group in the right setting, um, I'm, I'm in support of it. But I don't think there's a lot to learn personally for me left with that one. Yeah. But so, and this set off the inquiry into psychedelics? Yeah, both so of this, those two. To... Yeah, then I started switching what I was reading. I read all of Terrence McKenna. I read some Graham Hancock, you know, uh, all the Huxley books, Brave New World, Island. Um, yeah. What was the one about the 
doors of perception. Yeah, that just did all that stuff, which led to going to yoga teacher training, which led to smoking DMT, quitting my job at Oracle, and buying a one-way ticket to India. <laughs> Over about a three-year period. So, as it does, yeah. you know, as it does. <laughs> just go ahead and try it. It's not going to change your life. Everything's fine. <laughs> However, it was oh, a man. slow, steady thing. But what's funny about this is on the outside, I was hitting my number at Oracle, getting awards, getting promoted. Um, all that external stuff was still going on. And then I had this sort of simultaneous internal life, internal experience that was just slowly growing over time. And at some point it just eclipsed the external motivation and the internal motivation took over. And then that was kind of the point of no return. There's no way I could continue just trading my time for money in a typical sales douchebaggery environment. You know, it just wasn't doing it for me. Yeah. I came from a very similar environment, not in tech sales, but in, in financial sales, basically, but say, I'm sure a very similar environment, but you know, it's, it's kind of speaks to the way that truth compels you to change. You know, once you confronted, um, and truth is a bit tangly, but, uh, you know, once you confronted that experience and once you able to, were able to create that space with yourself and see things in a little bit or a drastically different light and feel that it was more uh, like there was more veracity to that uh, perspective than the one you held previously. And you can apply that to psychedelics. And obviously I think you can apply that to Bitcoin. Once you see that truth, it, it just compels you. You can resist it for a while, but resisting it is uncomfortable. It's painful. It, it grinds on you. Uh, and then, you know, eventually I think it just compels your, your forces, your hand and you have to make a change, you know, for you, maybe it was booking a ticket and leaving the job and, and going exploring for a bit, very similar story for myself. Now that we find ourselves in the Bitcoin space, it's, you know, talking to strangers on the internet, it's writing articles about Bitcoin and mushrooms. Like it's, it's none of this was in the plan, obviously, right. You didn't at the outset think I want to be a writer when I grow up and look at the, you know, the the comparison between this and that, you know, this is just how truth seems to compel you. It pushes through your life experiences and what, what squeezes out on the other side is something that you feel that you're uniquely capable of expressing as a result of encountering these different forms of truth. And that's, I mean, what could be, be- what could be better than that? I mean, it's uncomfortable because you might fumble around at the beginning think because you know we've never been trained to follow our intuition to interpret our gut instincts to learn how to express ourselves to find truth within ourselves rather than outside none of that has been trained we've been conditioned for the exact opposite stuff and so once we we take that leap of faith and we're like you know something just doesn't feel right i'm going to pursue that right feeling then comes the process of fumbling around until you one kind of discover what you're really about and who you really are and want to be and two how to maintain that while supporting and expressing yourself in the world. And that's no small task. And it might be a lifetime task. But what, what happens as a result, at least in my experience and many people who I've spoken to, the journey becomes way more fun. The journey becomes way more interesting because you know you're not what you're going to be. You know you're not where you're going to be. But you have a certain amount of contentness with who you are and what you're about. And you're excited for the novelty that is going to confront you in your life and the ways in which you'll be able to interact with that and express yourself through it. So, um, yeah, big advocate of, of, uh, well, 
big, big, uh, very grateful for the influence that truth has on, on people's life, at least, at least their perception of it. Absolutely. And I think something that needs to be underlined in what you said is that the change, the transition of what you're sort of given, what's handed to you in life, it's really comfortable to stay in that. And you see that a lot of people grow up in one town and they stay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, however, I would challenge that group of people, um, and, and many different communities have this, like a vision quest or a coming of age, or the Amish can leave when they're 18, and if they choose to come back, that type of thing. Uh, the hero's journey, you know, this is just fundamental throughout humanity, where you grow up, you transition into adulthood, and then theoretically, you're supposed to choose what you want, right? Your parents choose for you until a certain age, then when you choose, you're, you're an adult. And I would, I would say that in our culture today, most people don't go through that coming of age struggle and they don't actually fully become an adult. So they're not actually choosing their life. They're being handed this thing. And I think that that spills over into a culture of uh, adults who are actually children on the inside. And that would lead towards things like, I want the state to take care of me versus mm -hmm. I can take care of me and my family. It also leads to uh, dynamics within gender, which I don't necessarily want to get into. However, um, yeah, I think that that's a, a real thing that, that's not occurring, the, the coming of age. It is hard. It is scary. Um, and I think we should just be more aware of that as a culture and try to build in traditions that, that facilitate that, especially for a man. You know, yeah. we, do, we do need that, that feeling of accomplishment, that tether away from our mother's and to be a fully formed man who can then have his own family. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if psychedelics are that thing. They definitely were a part of that for me, a large part of that for me. And then the transition period afterwards is hard because you may be turning your back on friends who might not have taken a similar path, and you need to have compassion for yourself through that. And I think that was, again, going back to that early MDMA experience, was giving myself compassion to change and to kill the boy to become the man to turn my back on what I thought I, my identity was based on. And it was really hard, you know, having the, the good old boys at Oracle chirping in my ear, let's go get drunk and party and do this and buy boats and whatever. And then you have like the psychedelic community. And for me, also the yoga community, uh, a bit more grounded and saying like, what are you crazy people doing over there? That's, that's madness. And sort of those two forces pulling me, and, and that was the, the, the tension that led to me ultimately escaping the orbit of my former self. Yeah. And not, well, we are generalizing about both groups. Uh, I know there's exceptions in both. But what I find also is that when people kind of take that leap, leap of faith, it's kind of easy to go too far in the opposite direction too. You know, like I've been to Bali, I've been to Chiang Mai, I've been to all the kind of spiritual yogi, natural health centers. And I'm about that. You know, I, I studied natural medicine. I'm, you know, I'm really interested in that stuff. I prioritize my health, but I've been to a lot of these places. And what I see is a lot in, you know, a lot of people just outright rejecting the system and wanting to completely operate out, you know, just want to ignore, I guess, how things are in 99.9% .9 of the world, other than the little haven that they've created for themselves. And, um, I don't think that's the way to go either. You know, I think, and what's interesting about the Bitcoin space, I think you and I are perhaps trying to become examples of this. And these conversations maybe are, are helping in that regard is that it's, it's not about relinquishing entirely one or the other. You need to find 
a good synthesis of the two. Because as you say, you want to be compassionate and empathetic and have kind of a, for lack of a better term, like a universal consciousness, see in you myself sort of thing. But you also want to engage the savage aspect of yourself, the animal aspect of yourself. You want to be strong and vicious if necessary, yes. you know? And so training those uh, is also important, not neglecting them, not, not um, acting like they don't exist. I mean, I think that's very dangerous because those elements of yourself that one, you're not aware of, and two, you don't engage and train, well, then you don't have much control over them. And then they can flare up in, in scenarios and where you lose control and they can be detrimental to you or, the, or, you know, there's many different ways that can unfold. So, you know, strangely, perhaps what Bitcoin seems to be doing is kind of pulling like the best from a variety of different worlds using in this example, just the two of these. And I think they're, they're major, but bringing them together and like some kind of an ethic is coalescing. Again, I'm generalizing, but we're, uh, you know, we're, we are pulling from the best to kind of construct like, you know, or at least pass around ideas about what a kind of optimized uh, human being looks like in an environment where we have sound money finally, you know, or, or the best form of it that we've ever had and pulling on all the other disciplines to kind of tweak and change and, and have an idea of what, you know, what we can be and what the best way of being as an individual is. And I totally agree with your point uh, about kind of rites of passage. You know, I think, I think the nanny state influences people not wanting to, you know, abdicating the, the, the uncomfortable aspects of that. And then that abdication fuels the nanny state. And it's kind of a, you know, they both reinforce each other. Um, and I think it's founded probably in, I mean, so much, and this is something that the psychedelic experience impresses upon people as well. So much is founded in fear. Uh, fear guides so much of our behavior and fear and aversion guides so much of our behavior. And that the psychedelic experience often makes you confront your fears. And that's why it can be so therapeutic um, and kind of showing you some of your blind spots, because it'll show you uh, that what you've been fearing has been limiting who you are, or what you do and, and those sorts of things. And I think, um, I, you know, I think we would all be better served if there was kind of like a clear demarcation point in our lives, whether it's when you turn 13 or 18 or whatever, where uh, the wisdom of your family, your lineage, the society is imbued in you up to that point, And you're kind of told like now is a, is a, um, you know, is, is a test for you to take the responsibility for yourself, to take the wisdom and the training that you've been given and go out and become the person that you, you know, desire to be and that you should be. And we are so far away from that right now. We're at, at every turn, you know, we're coddled, we're, we avoid uh, harm, we avoid danger, we avoid difficulty, you know, difficult uh, circumstances, circumstances rather, and uh, to our detriment, I think. And I think uh, that is a manifestation of a, a, a nanny state fueled by sound money. I think that is the inevitable end result of uh, a state that has endless ability to print money. And I think it's only to be expected that this is the outcome we see from that. Uh, and I think Bitcoin is a bright spot in that dynamic that's um, allowing us to 
or giving us an option to reverse that 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 reverse course or at least have a lifeboat when when things continue on the current trajectory nailed it oh man so many so many little tabs got opened in my mind during that last one uh, <laughs> i'm gonna bring it i'm gonna go from where you just and i'm gonna end where you just ended but come through it a little bit more meandering way um First, we do need to highlight the fact that if you're going to go pursue psychedelics or any type of these uh, ecstatic technologies, that they are inherently destabilizing. So if you're the type of person who wants rigid routines, this may rattle you. Was it ultimately a good thing? Probably. But don't go willy-nilly into the abyss because there are a lot of people, like you mentioned, who hang out in Bali and Goa and Copenhagen and many other places that are just floating out in the abyss. They turn their back on the default world, which they diagnosed the right problem. And then what they did was they found a solution and they didn't really look at it too skeptically. And they just traded one dogma for another. And they're no better off. And unfortunately, they're probably worse off because they have an ego around this newfound reality that they feel is superior. When in, in reality, they're just half of a circle, but they're the other half of the circle. And so they're not integrating the experience like you mentioned. So if you're going to go into the abyss, you know, take it seriously, do the work, do the homework. It's not, it's not an easy path. It's not a, it's not a silver bullet. Um, so I just think we both agree on that. Let's just put that disclaimer out there. And for my own life, when leaving Oracle, I, I always say the pendulum swang very far away from it, right? I turned my back on a previous identity. I built up a new one as a hippie backpacker. My girlfriend at the time, now wife, backpacked for years, living out of a bag. And we, we went to those backpacker ghettos like Bali, like Copenhagen, et cetera, and embraced that, embraced that environment. And strangely enough, I didn't even put this together until just now. Uh, in 2017, I found my way to Bitcoin. And that was what shifted the pendulum, pendulum back towards the middle. I was floating in the abyss and... You know, not quite like the, the deep end we're describing in these places. I was always skeptical of that. But yeah. for me, I was way out there. And Bitcoin me brought me, me back in. And Bitcoin was, okay, um, this is a very deep thing that connects humanity. I'm, I'm inherently drawn to it. And it's led me to um, get back into business stuff, working at Swan now. I do my own consulting and I, I own a few online businesses um, in that world. And yeah, I, I guess it's just a funny little bookend between psychedelics and Bitcoin. One shook me one way, Bitcoin brought me back the other way. That's it? <laughs> That's it. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And, and I, you know, like I said, my experience was very similar uh, to that. And um, I, as, as you said, I was always skeptical as well. And for a time I wanted to find, because I was, before coming to Bitcoin, and real, you know, see, learning so much about how the existing monetary system worked, I was so disheartened with everything. I just wanted to, I, f I figured the only approach, the only sensible approach was just to find a little, uh, you know, haven, which I guess is what these people have done, right? They've checked out. They've been like, man, this is way too fucked to, to ever turn around. We might as well just try to find a little paradise and make the best of it. And that certainly seems like what's going on. And I visited all those places. and. I was always just kind of disappointed by like lovely people, you know, great food, uh, lovely environments and locales and stuff like that, of course. But I was always just kind of disappointed what I found there. I, I found, uh, you know, that people 
wanted this, you know, kind of utopia ish. And they, what they created was kind of like a commercialized ashram or something, you know, just a, a place where it's just all about looking a certain way. And I'm, I'm being a bit harsh. They're like, they're lovely people and they're probably, you know, they're more, they're empathetic and they're compassionate, but they've just, I think they're pursuing something that doesn't exist. They really wish it did, but it doesn't. And I think what Bitcoin is doing is bringing people back down to reality and saying, you know, a certain way of interacting at scale now exists, and this is the best we can hope for. So let's do our best to maximize what this potential represents. And somehow through some process that's incredibly difficult to articulate, and I'm sure there'll be books written about it in the future, and I love talking about it with people, it's whether because of its inherent attributes or whether just because of its soundness as a money, which is the fundamental organizing mechanism for human uh, economic interaction, um, is inspiring a certain set of behaviors amongst people. And it's, it's kind of valuing some behaviors and devaluing others. And whether that's because the entity itself is kind of emitting uh, is, is, is these, uh, these characteristics that are rubbing off on people or there's some other pro process at play. I'm not exactly sure, but I, I like how, um, it's just, it's, it's given people a real option for change rather than, uh, just getting out of Dodge effectively. And I think that's really good. And the more people that can come to see it that way, which hopefully will be more after your, your spot on the psychedelic salon, the better. I agree. And I think what's really interesting here is those communities that were sort of bashing, um, I understand how they got there. I'm compassionate to their worldview and they do really want that worldview. And I think what's missing there is the fact that they all still do need to make money somehow. And so there develops this weird spiritual hierarchy and economy there and new people come in and they're sort of extracted from and there's a darker side to most of those communities the longer you spend time in them. And ironically, Bitcoin, which is money, which is often shunned in these communities, money is bad. Mm. Um, Bitcoin's actually a fundamental tool required if you're going to make a quote utopia or just distance yourself from the system. And so, you know, we could call it the Citadel model or the psychedelic Citadel model where you do need a money that separates you from the state and you could actually move energy around as money in those communities. And I mm. use that in air quotes. Um, and so I think that the, the two communities are so much more aligned than meets the eye. And, and it comes back to the problem of humans don't understand what money is. And even for, from our perspective on the call here, it's very obvious that the communities overlap here. You know, they're Bitcoiners, they just don't know it yet. And I think there's tons of communities like that. And it, and it just speaks to the fact that people don't know what money is. And so trying to get the message across, it almost seems like we need to start at that level versus anything to do with Bitcoin. Forget Bitcoin. You right. find Bitcoin as soon as you pull the first thread that money's not what it seems or that it, it can be different or it, it actually influences you or it's not bad. You know, some of those first hurdles, um, that's all it takes. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, and I agree with all of that, but when you said, you know, you pull the string on money and Bitcoin is what you find, ultimately, I agree, but the journey is a bit, uh, is wrought with danger, right? And I find that a lot of those communities, they wind up in 
in shitcoin land perhaps more easily and i don't know if it's just they like the narrative like oh wow like you know this system that will pay us for our you know yoga poses or whatever um and like that i don't know why those those systems or that way of thinking makes more sense to them but it does seem to be the case that um bitcoin how should i word this Bitcoin kind of shuns the overly um, like fluffy approach to things, right? Like Bitcoin, and perhaps that's because it is what it is and it doesn't care what you want it to be. And so that in itself is kind of a conservative ethic, right? It's, it's not fluid. It, it, like it, it's very much what it is and you can accept it or not. And I think that certainly falls more on the conservative side of the way of thinking about things. And so perhaps that's why, you know, people that, to use the political paradigm, would normally be more left-leaning uh, in terms of uh, the policies that they support, for example, would be more uh, attracted to all the weird, wacky, and wonderful things that, you know, all these other blockchains and shitcoins pur purport to be able to do and, and the equality that they will in, uh, inspire and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't, know, I don't know if I have a point there, but it just seems like that's kind of one of the things that plays out. And I'm wondering for you, uh, or I'd like to get your, your take on this. I'm getting the sense that you were kind of to the left uh, in, in that way of thinking earlier in your life. you know. Um, and I feel like perhaps, as we've been discussing, Bitcoin has pulled you, I hate to use that 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 paradigm the the right left uh, paradigm but let's just use it for the purposes of this discussion right now and know that neither of us are i don't think either of us are overly political and we're not really we don't classify ourselves in those ways but just to say that you've been pulled more kind of into a conservative mind and way of operating as a result of learning about engaging in bitcoin is that the case and if so why do you think that is yeah 100 percent the case um i would say as a curious person, you know, stumbling into things like Zeitgeist documentaries in 2000, I don't know, six, seven, eight, whenever that stuff was around, um, I started to question things. And where I ended up was that our economic system that we're currently living under is broken fundamentally. And I jumped to the hasty conclusion that the problem was capitalism and the problem was extracting things and you know we just have to move post capitalism to some other magic thing that's just going to be better you know right. and I, I held that belief for many years and i think it was largely driven by bitcoin to realize I, and actually yeah i mean bitcoin started that path but i would say matt ridley's book the rational optimist that was nail in the coffin which is a i don't know if you're familiar with this but he's one of my favorite authors very good book but it's essentially in defense of markets and in defense of capitalism and how, you know, most people think that the world is getting worse when you look at these strange metrics and you look at the news and whatever, it's just a fear machine. Um, but if you look at objective metrics like um, war, famine, infant mortality, all these things are at an all time low. It's never been better in humanity. And he starts with that premise. That's we should be rationally, we should be optimistic. It's rational to be optimistic. That's sort of the point. And he defends that by saying um, markets and specialization of labor and all that type of thing, which creates trade, which saves time, going back to Bitcoin and time. Um, that's sort of his explanation for those things. 
And that framing really worked for me. Um, there's obviously problems with capitalism, but there is no other solution for coordination on a planet. And so coming back to that made me realize, wow, um, I was very wrong about my solution to, quote, capitalism. In fact, what we need is more capitalism, uh, not less. And it just needs to be uh, a little bit less driven by the state. And I would say that's probably the fundamental thing. Uh, that switched my political views. But also at the same time, guys like Jordan Peterson and Brett Weinstein, um, they sort of opened my eyes to the the problems of the social left, the populist left, which is eating itself. And Jordan Peterson really hammered it home for me with free speech, which is that if we police speech, we make safe spaces, you can't use the right word, wrong word, and then Canada even uh, put a law in place that it's illegal to call someone by the wrong name or pronoun. I forgot the exact situation. But mm-hmm. that, it comes from a good place. However, it erodes free speech. And so when I saw the left eating itself and you're not woke enough and, and just devouring, canceling extremely left-leaning people, but not on the fringe, that sort of woke me up and detached me from the political left, the social side of the left. And so yeah. Bitcoin and rational optimists and markets got me out of the monetary side and then yeah, watching free speech erode, which is the foundation of everything as far as I'm concerned. You can't have an open society without speech. And seeing those two things together made me feel very alienated politically. I also don't um, resonate with the extreme right-wing social commentary at all. And so, yeah, I agree. I'm sort of a free agent politically and my political views, as I say now, is Bitcoin. Um, I don't waste an ounce of political energy trying to change the system from the inside or having debates about these things. Um, if people are talking about libtards or um, Trump supporters, whatever, if any of that kind of framing is involved, you're playing 2D chess and I don't want anything to do with it. And so, yeah, yeah you, you're right. Your, your intuition is absolutely right there on the transition. Yeah. The, the, the whole characterizing the way people might think on, on a subject through either this group or that group is so asinine like as you say i i see the lens through you know kind of i i see the world through kind of a bitcoin lens these days um and as you say i think the best solution is to play the 4d chess is to just engage in that solution build it promote it and that's your that's the best use of your time and energy and attention but also like case by case man like if you want to know how i feel about something just ask me and I'll tell you how I feel about it. But don't assume that, you know, because I support, uh, you know, gun ownership that I might also support whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's far too simplistic uh, to, to see the world through you're either in one camp or the other. And of course it, it, it drums up uh, or a lot of problems emerge as a result of, of seeing things that way. And I think there's an inherent issue about complexity where our hardware is not designed to handle this much of a complex world. And we're not supposed to have Instagram to check into our neighbor and our neighbor around the world, right? And so these tools in a complex society in a way hijacks our inherent hardware. And things like if you see your neighbor growing food and they're growing twice as much food as you, you should feel jealous and upset and inferior because that's a motivation to then go learn how your neighbor grew more food so then you can grow more food that makes sense biologically however today if you can scroll instagram and see everyone in the world's backyard and their backyard is actually curated and filtered 
it, it does a lot of things to our psyche. Um, you know, our psyche is actually playing against us in that way. It's weaponized against us. And so just as that little example, and you multiply it by the complexity of the world, people can't grapple with it. It's really hard to make sense of the world. So what, what do we do? We take shortcuts and we say us versus them, also ingrained through our evolutionary biological history, where if two separate bands of tribes came together, one band usually died, whether through disease or war over resources or whatever. So we're fearful of the unknown. And so we have these latent programs that aren't necessarily compatible with modern society. And mm -hmm. thankfully, humans have the ability to change out our software, meaning what is our culture of the day? And we try to smooth out, um, you know, reconciling our hardware and, and what's the cultural programming of today. And I think that's just a fascinating way to um, try to understand why people have such a hard time with social media and have a hard time with politics. And if you, you know, you zoom out, it's so obviously trivial, but most people are caught up in that battle. I get caught up in that battle all the time. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's important to realize that and to bring it to our boy Terrence McKenna, which somehow hasn't gotten brought up yet. Um, he has got a famous bit called culture is not your friend. And at face value, people are like, whoa, what are you talking about? I'm cultured. I like wine, fancy foods, whatever. Um, but his message is that the cultural programming of the day is not designed to improve your well-being or your life or anything for you. It's this megalithic structure that exists and it drags, this juggernaut dragging across time. And if you just latch on to the juggernaut, um, you know, without examining what's being given to you, then you're going to have a bad time. And so detach from the juggernaut, participate in areas of culture that makes sense to you. But don't, don't just take what's given to you. Don't be the herd uh, unless you choose to be the herd, in which case, fine. Yeah. And that's exactly, that goes back to the cognitive liberty, liberty aspect. You know, you, <clears throat> some people need to be ripped apart from that way of, of seeing things to see culture as for, for what it is before they're able to make the determination how much they want to engage in it and how they want to leverage it for their own purposes rather than being leveraged for its purposes. You know, you mentioned the Peterson and, uh, you know, he has fallen on hard times, I guess, over the last 18 months, uh, wife's health uh, issues and his own uh, psychological issues. And I just actually saw an interview with him. I think it was this week or last week. Uh, his daughter interviewed him. I believe they're in Serbia right now. And he's getting some uh, form of treatment that apparently uh, has been the only thing that's been effective. He was. Um, addicted to benzodiazepines and uh, he, you know, went to the U.S., to Russia, to various places and couldn't get resolution. And apparently this treatment in Serbia is really helping. But, to you know, I one when he came up very controversial and I think what he was saying resonated with a lot of people in terms of, man, this dude is just saying things that a lot of people are afraid to say, and he's really well at articulating it, and he has the psycho psychological and kind of evolutionary biology framework to back it up. And so he's credible, and uh, that's part of the reason why he became so popular. But one of the things that I, you know, always sticks with me that he would harp on that never really, you know, beyond his own uh, musings, never really got picked up many other places, a little bit, you know, Rogan and Weinstein's and that kind of stuff. But the point that it's very clear when the right goes too far, 
you know, you get this like racial superiority and you get, you know, all the crazy stuff we've seen in, in, in different parts of history. But it's not so clearly defined when the left goes too far. And I think like that was such a prescient um, thing for him to say, because if we look around the world today, particularly in the United States, but of course, other areas as well, I think we're seeing the manifestation of or the big the beginnings of if if nothing else of the left going too far but people don't have a framework to recognize it so people acquiesce or people say oh no it's okay like it's just a you know this is normal or yeah it's just a small change to our language or whatever and as you say if you don't have free speech freedom is impossible and it's a very slippery slope to you know if you if you don't have the ability to articulate ideas in an unrestricted way, then you're limited, obviously, in the ideas that you can articulate. And the fewer ideas that we have doing battle, one, the less, the, the, the quality of the solutions we devise through that process are going to be lower. And as is so often said, if the ideas don't do battle, the people will. And, and it all hinges on free speech, the ability to express yourself in an unencumbered, unrestricted way, and not have people tell you that those thoughts and those words are not allowed. Because that is what does the most damage across the board. And to the point on capitalism, capital, you know, lots of cancel culture around capitalism today. Uh, and there was a time with you, you know, I watched the Zeitgeist, Zeitgeist movies. I thought, oh, yeah, you know, we need something like the Venus Project, you know, this like utopian, high tech, whatever, organized society. All really cool stuff. I love technology. It's great. Um, but as you say, what, what, we don't need less capitalism we need more we need a more um a, a less uh, manipulated form of, of capitalism and that's what bitcoin provides that's what it allows for as as other people have said it's not the the system that should allow the money it's the money that allows the system bitcoin is going to allow for a form of capitalism that is less able to be manipulated and therefore more able to serve the interests of the people that engage in it honestly and um, that is so counter to the prevailing narrative that we hear, uh, you know, bandied around today where, um, you know, it's being scapegoated for a great many of the problems um, that we're encountering. But the final point uh, that I wanted to touch on, one of the things you mentioned is kind of the, the influence of social media in, you know, our evolution. We were evolved to interact in smaller groups and not have to kind of pay attention to or at one like, you know, behold such a mass of activity and interactions at once, which of course I, I agree with. Um, and social media is having, uh, is doing a number on us all uh, in many different ways. And that's certainly responsible for a lot of the things we're seeing in, in society. But one of the things that interests me about social media, yes, but Bitcoin, uh, as far as we've been discussing with behavior change, and we've both articulated a little bit uh, our experiences with that, is how rapidly on an evolutionary scale it's inspiring change you know so i think humanity can be generally characterized as the frog boiling in water it's real even those of us who are attempt to be as clear thinking as possible it's really difficult for us to see outside of our time and um if but if we do zoom out to the extent that we can i mean look how fast this thing is changing people you know look, look at the discussion we've had thus far and we've we've kind of said that you know psychedelics might have pushed us way off that way 
and Bitcoin is pushing us this way. And these are real fundamental um, kind of worldview paradigm shifts that are inspiring different behaviors in us and actually fundamentally, fundamentally changing the course of our lives in many ways in, in who we want to engage with, you know, um, families that we start, you know, uh, businesses that we build or contribute to. And um, in just in a, in a few short years. So what are your thoughts? And if you want to relate this to, to the mushrooms, then, uh, then you go for it. But what are your thoughts on the kind of evolutionary impacts of something like Bitcoin and the behavior changes it inspires uh, and where we are right now in, in that process? Yeah, definitely. Um, I like the framing here. And I would say, um, just to be clear, in order for there to be biological evolution, there would need to be, let's say, Bitcoiners get a bunch of wealth and then that wealth leads them to be able to reproduce at a higher rate than people without Bitcoin. So in order for there to actually be uh, evolution like that, there would be genetic changes. Um, so I think let's look at it from like a social evolutionary change. Like what spark does this Bitcoin thing cause that leads humanity to change directions? And I think that's very, very, very real. And, you know, if you look at it from the individual person, it, it, we, we obviously notice individual changes. And then we also have this community to lean on, which... Um, sort of a tether. We're all sort of tethered to this anchor point, and that anchor point has in inherent values, which then spill out into society. And so, I think it's a really important change. It, it sort of feels like a new paradigm where you have a foundational layer of society that is fundamentally true, which you can, which technically money is built on top of. Sort of that decentralized clock that anchors to money. That that is a new foundation which we can build a thousand years of progress on top of. I do believe that. Um, I think it's also hopefully going to be the end of the fiat culture and what that drags along to it. And so, you know, if we see a Bitcoin revolution or renaissance or whatever you want to call it, where Bitcoin does eat all the value in the world and the people who are early to Bitcoin have that wealth and power, um, what does that world look like? And I think that's a really fun question. Because to me, I think I would much rather have who I define as the Bitcoin community to have wealth, power, influence, capital, whatever, than the people who have it today, right? Which we can discuss how they got their, their wealth. But I would say that the Bitcoiners are going to use that wealth in a better way. Um, and you could look at that by sort of characterizing who holds a piece of it today, which would be open-minded people, people who are not afraid to... Um, turn their back on mainstream culture, who have political views that are not easily defined, who think from principles, um, you know, who do care about human freedoms, and who care enough to understand this stuff at the deepest level. Also, you could say privileged enough to understand this stuff at the deepest level. Also, you could say you had to have capital to own some Bitcoin to really benefit. And so it's not necessarily a perfect utopic transition, but I would say if Bitcoiners hold power, I, I would be more optimistic about our future than if the people who have power today continue the game. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And on the final point there, I think this is where we lose some of the more idealist minded people. In, it, just in that you, you mentioned kind of the distribution and what led to the people who hold Bitcoin today holding Bitcoin privilege, time, wealth, et cetera, geographic location, whatever. And a lot of people would, would criticize that and say, 
you know, Bitcoin's cool, but like it can't be the solution because, you know, it's concentrated in the hands of few and et cetera, et cetera. And they think like, let's do something very similar, but let's, you know, give everyone an equal amount or distribute it in a different way. And I think that's one of the fundamental divides is, and, you know, also the reason why some people favor, you know, greater state intervention and why some people poo-poo capitalism. It's, you know, reality and nature is about the harmony of destruction and, you know, construction, basically, you know, life and death, the yin and yang of, of things. And it, we seem to want to frame things in a manner that is, you know, perfect now. We, we seem to want to avoid the, um, the difficult truths or realities that are inherent in, in nature, in life, in the universe. And I think, you know, with Bitcoin's distribution, just as an example, sure, you can make the case pretty easily that it's not ideal. You know, it, it's probably not ideal that a small, you know, another small group of people, call it 10, call it 100, have, you know, a huge percentage of, uh, of the wealth in Bitcoin. But it's probably the only way it could have happened. And it's the way it did happen. And it's not something that we can replicate again. So we're just going to have to live with it. On the upside, they don't get to leverage, you know, they don't get to leverage that position in the same way that the people in a similar position in the legacy system today can do, right? So if, you know, they only have a certain amount of Bitcoin and when they spend it, it's gone. They don't have kind of a refresh button that they just get more for free, as is the case today. So will they have exceptional amounts of wealth? Yes. And will that mean that they, you know, live a privileged life and, and have more power? Yes. But one, they're probably far more ideologically aligned with, for lack of a better term, freedom loving, uh, fairness minded people than are the incumbents in the same positions today. So that's good. And two, their wealth will filter out into the system. And at, because it can't be manipulated, because it can't be created out of thin air, then they, you know, they're just another market actor. And if you want some of their money, then you provide value to the market and that's how you get it. So, but the point being is that I, I find so much of the discourse around this stuff is kind of centers around wanting to avoid or ignore, you know, the, the oftentimes harsh realities of competing in a market environment or a natural environment, right? I mean, you spend a lot of time in nature and I think studying nature and looking at parallels, obviously between, uh, you know, the fungal kingdom and Bitcoin nature, broadly speaking is a harmony, a beautiful, diverse harmony of life and activity. And it's fucking amazing. And, you know, I know we both love it, but it's that way because it's extremely competitive. Um, you know, it kind of in every, it, it's, <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? It's, 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 uh, the harmony is, is on the whole, but you get competition throughout. And in that competition, there's winners and losers. Some trees make it to the top of the canopy. Other trees, other trees die. You know, the lion eats a gazelle sometimes, but there's a shitload of other gazelles and they run away. Like that's the balance. And I feel like in, in culture today, so much of people's political and economic thinking is, is, is centered around uh, trying to avoid the kind of, uh, the the more uncomfortable aspects of what it means to uh, have freedom, both as an individual and in a market. 
I don't know, that was kind of poorly said, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. No, a couple of things there. <laughs> One, um, people confuse the fact that Bitcoin's in its adoption phase. Let's say there's an adoption phase and a maturity phase. The adoption phase is obviously what we're into now. This is price discovery. Um, if Bitcoin works, the price will go up tremendously. And so people think that that's all that Bitcoin provides value. It's not like a get rich quick thing. And now we rode the adoption cycle. That's not the end of Bitcoin. That's when Bitcoin starts. When Bitcoin is the primary money, then you can start to extrapolate on all the fun stuff of what a sound money system is. And you touched on them. Things like the people who hold the money don't necessarily control all the power. They don't get to just hit refresh on their money. They spend it and it's gone. That's a much better system. And the people, the normal people, they get to reap what they sow instead of uh, sort of getting siphoned away their wealth every year. Or anytime there's a catastrophe, even more of it siphoned away. And so it does create a more equitable world in a future state with sound money. Um, I think that's entirely important. Then you made a point about uh, personal responsibility. And it's a scary thing for most people, right? If you can outsource all responsibility, if you fail, well, it's okay. You know, it's not your fault. Um, and if you succeed, it's also kind of not your fault. So you don't really try that hard. And it, and it puts people in this... Um, also childlike state, the stasis between not trying too hard for fear of failure or even fear of success. And Bitcoin forces you to be personally responsible with your money because no one else is. And I think having that, taking steps towards personal responsibility in one capacity, I do think that that does spill over in other aspects of life. I know it has for me. It does feel good to take responsibility. And I, I say this story often, but uh, side side tangent here. I once I found out that governments, monetary system, culture, whatever you want to say, the big human system is not necessarily my friend. It's not working for me. The government's not doing things to help me necessarily. A lot of people find that scary and they don't want to believe that and they just choose not to believe that and they choose a different narrative where the state is good. Um, I felt empowered after the initial shock saying that, okay, if I want to change my world, I'm the only one who can do it. Take responsibility. And to me, that's empowering because that, that also frees you from the fact that you're not, the life you're given is not your destiny. You can author your own life, which is a Peterson line. And I really resonate with that. It's empowering. And I think Bitcoin does spill over um, outside of monetary sovereignty, outside of um, monetary responsibility. And we have things like people take their health more seriously. You know, you, you might look more long-term. You might be better at saving. You know, these are common things that spill over. And so I think we're just sort of stumbling on, excuse me, back to the evolutionary question you had. I think we are stumbling on a massive force that potentially will change the course of history. Um, not just replacing the money, but it does come with a different type of values. And I really do hope we're at peak uh, nation state as in like the magnitude of your army is the number one indicator of success. I hope we're past that point, um, kind of the sovereign individual thesis. And there's a lot of markers that say we are, and I think that's a better world. And it doesn't mean it's not gonna be a rocky transition. It will probably be horrible for a lot of people, like all changes. But if we're looking on the long human timescale, which is extremely hard for humans to do, I think we are, you know, the wheels are moving in one direction that will be better and it will set the stage to hopefully not um, 
see our species go extinct, right? I don't want to hit the great filter anytime soon. I would like to be a multi-planet species and see what humans are capable of. Um, yeah, I imagine tripping at the finish line and ruining the great homo sapien experience because we didn't adopt something like Bitcoin or whatever the thing is that gets us to the next stage. Yeah. I mean, there's, I'm of two minds about that. One, I'd be like, yeah, that would be a real shame, you know, because what a cool 10,000 years it's been for us, civilization-wise, and, you know, a few hundred thousand for, let's say, modern uh, humans. But at the same time, I'm like, we live in an infinite universe, presumably. This may have happened a lot, you know, many, many times before and will happen many, many times again. So, you know, if we don't get it right, if we don't get it right it's not the end of the world. Or it's the end of our world, but not the end of the worlds, you know? Uh, but I would prefer to see us succeed. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Uh, but, man, I think I love what you just said. Totally agree. And I, the end of fiat is a really interesting uh, period in history and set of circumstances that I really hope, you know, some author digs their teeth into and, and explores. And, you know, <clears throat> if you've got any book references that, of authors that have done that in the past i'd love to have them uh but it's so it seems so obvious right the money is so soft in that it, it it's literally created at zero cost right so there's there's no real value in the money or, or at least it's losing it rapidly because of the way we, we've been abusing it and you know simultaneous to that and it, i don't think it should come as any surprise we live in the culture that's extremely soft as well, right? Your kids in school, well, you can't say these words to them anymore or those words because, you know, they, their feelings will be hurt. Or you can't let them go out, you know, and play in the rain because, you know, then they'll get wet and they'll cold. And, you know, you can't let, you know, companies that are too big to fail fail because then people will lose their jobs and there will be hardship there. And we're just, everywhere we go, we're doing our best to respond to uh, this pervasive softness with as many kind of you know cushions as we can and it only accelerates the process and it really seems like that as you say that is probably what characterizes the end of this type of experiment and as we know it's happened in the past and it's usually unfolded this this these types of experiments have unfolded in similar um ways in the past but uh, and then as you say you have the antithesis to that, you have something like Bitcoin that's inspiring total, you know, basically the exact opposite behavior, extreme individual responsibility, extreme ownership of the decisions that you make, of the circumstances that befall you. Um, and that you, you, you take that because the payout is fairness, is playing on an even playing field. And that's worth it. That's, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where you face the mirror and you say, okay, hotshot, now you're in, you've taken the responsibility. Yeah, it feels good. You're in control. Now you're on the playing field and it's all even. You succeed or fail based on what you bring to the table and how you're going to compete in this environment. Are you ready? And most people go, fuck, no, I'm not ready. I've been like, my whole life has been playing this other game. I'm not ready for this game. And I think that's part of the reason why we see you know, people almost frantically on a, on a historical scale, if, you know, if not individual as well, but certainly more so on a historical scale, 
thinking like, what do I need to do to make myself fit for this new game? Like, how do I get ready for this new game? You know, and that's part of taking the responsibility and shoring up deficiencies in your life and being more educated and trying to see, see things more clearly. And where is that more evident than, than like the Twitter Bitcoin space where there's, there's an obsession with being at, you know, right at the tip of the, the wave or the tip of the spear on what new thinking is coming through, what new, you know, where everyone's, there's this insatiable desire to be kept up to date and to start integrating a lot of these solutions that are going to make you fit for this new game into your life. Because one, you realize, you know, that you, you're going to need those things to play the game and you also realize what's at stake. You know, you, you realize that the, the, the time in history, you realize how unique this change is. And you're like, oh, there's a lot on the line, you know? So I think all of those things motivate people to just do that 180 in their car and be like, and, and stop engaging in and playing and being influenced by the old game and start doing so for the new. Completely agree. And I think some people will, uh, I guess the question that comes to mind is, is everyone, uh, is the average person, if you look at a whole planet here, are people willing or able or, you know, even is culture able to sustain a burden like Bitcoin? I wonder that question. And I think the end. Can you, what do you mean? Can, uh, you, explore, can you explain that a bit? Yeah. What, what I mean is I don't think people are suited for as much responsibility as uh, Bitcoin today requires. And right. I, don't, I don't view this as a bad thing. Like if you think about a Dunbar tribe, there are leaders and there are followers. And genetically, the leader is not the one who actually passes on his genes most because the leader is always being gunned for by second place. The leader takes more risk. So theoretically, if we believe this is true, our gene pool today is mostly followers. Yes, man, second in command, don't rock the boat type people. And so if we extrapolate that today, most people aren't hardwired for extreme personal responsibility. And you could say if Bitcoin in its current form is all of a sudden for everyone, it, I don't think it's going to work. But I'm optimistic because Bitcoin is um, in its current form, it, it's just digital scarcity and we can do it without however we please. And we can create shared custody models. We can create all these abstractions and individuals can latch onto Bitcoin in the amount of personal responsibility that they're willing to accept in exchange for the risks that come with not taking personal responsibility. And so I just think that's an interesting question is trying to think about a world where all the people who are inherently going to like and adopt Bitcoin ideals, once that's saturated, we're going to have to move into a much softer um, side of humanity in order to get them to embrace Bitcoin. And so that requires building tools for people that don't necessarily share the same values that the hardcore Bitcoiners do today. And yep. I think that what some Bitcoiners believe is that, no, we're all going to be gun-toting ranch owners in the future. And that's, that's not going to happen. Never will. And so what is this like, you know, we don't want citadels, drawbridges, and crocodiles and surfs outside. There needs to be a world where, yes, we're ahead of the curve. We, we rode the wave up and now we can deploy capital in a way to make the world better. But the average person is not going to accept that responsibility. And so what's the middle ground that we can offer? Um, and that's not me trying to like say no to Bitcoin values. It's, it's just being realistic. The Bitcoin values are inherent to the protocol and not everyone needs to manage their own keys. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's going to be so interesting to see how that plays out, right? Like how, 
and I talked about this with Croesus underscore BTC the other day on a pod, and he looked at Bitcoin's uh, adoption through a, like a normal uh, technology adoption curve and where we are kind of, if you place a, like, yeah, where we are on that curve. And we talked about what, what qualifies as adoption, right? Because that's a critical question when, you de- when you're trying to determine where we are with adoption. Is adoption having 100 bucks, 1,000 bucks, 10,000, having in a multi-sig, you know, cold storage or, you know, what is adoption? And I was speaking with Obi from CoinFloor a couple of days ago. And he's gone through, you know, the various phases of shilling, you know, and he's, he's wound up on one where he says like, you know, unless people are genuinely asking me a lot of questions about Bitcoin, I don't shill them because I don't even want people to adopt Bitcoin before they're ready. I don't want them to come in for a short pump and then, you know, either get scared away and sell or take some profit and sell, you know, that's great for them, but I'm not it's not worth my time to get those types of people or that level of adoption into the space. What I want to bring in is, you know, for hodlers, right? I want to bring in long-term hodlers to get it. And, you know, I agree with that. But to your point, it's, I'm unclear about it because I'm curious if this is not more of, well, money is how we interact economically, right? Both with others and with ourselves. And that's behavior when, when you boil it down. So this, this is a behavioral revolution. The money is the mechanism uh, to foster that. And so I'm, I'm curious to see, like, even though I agree with your point that not everyone's going to be a gun-toting whatever, um, like, is adoption of Bitcoin predicated on people fundamentally changing kind of who they are and their ingrained or habitual behaviors, as we have discussed in this conversation. I mean, is, is that what adoption looks like? And I can tell you from having spoken to both, you know, well-known Bitcoiners and, you know, recently a lot of less well-known Bitcoiners, you know, people on Twitter, the behavior change, I haven't met anybody yet. There's, there's minor differences, of course, but the way the kind of perspective and the worldview um, of the people I'm speaking to and the changes that they've articulated that they've that have occurred through their process of engaging and adopting Bitcoin, almost universal, the same. And so I I do wonder if as we all sit on our phones and watch the price charts and get all excited when it goes to ten thousand, fourteen thousand, whatever, and we all talk about the technology and we're excited about all that stuff. Amidst that, or it happening in the background, a far larger, more significant change to, that people are watching far less closely is the fact that adoption is people changing who they are and the types of behavior that they exhibit. It's not really owning Bitcoin. Owning Bitcoin may foster that, and there may be a, like a, a, a positive feedback loop between them, but you know, this it's maybe the the adoption we're looking for is people that could hop on this call with us right now and pretty much be in sync with everything we're saying maybe that's the revolution maybe that's the change because you know to reiterate it is a behavioral revolution the money is just the tool we use to uh, to allow us to behave in a certain way it either permits or, or prohibits certain behavior but the revolution is behavioral and uh, so when you ask kind of like what we what the future may look like 
I don't know, but I, I like to imagine that we see dramatic and radical changes in behavior uh, from what we see today, kind of peak soft money. And whether it's 50, 100, 200 years from now, we see a society of, of people that, um, hard to characterize, but have instilled in them a lot of the, the things that we've been touching on today, but probably amplified uh, and refined a tremendous amount. Uh, and I do think that can happen on a large scale. I agree that today, like it's kind of inconceivable that people would take custody of their own keys. And maybe that's not the thing that they have to do to get there. Maybe that gets abstracted away somehow. But, you know, I, I'm, I say this somewhat jokingly, but in our, in our 100, 200 year future, I see a bunch of Jedis, you know, a bunch of people like that, you know, in control of their, uh, of their lives and their emotions and taking responsibility and strong yet compassionate, capable, you know, informed seeing the world uh, with clarity, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and surrounded by the fruits of, of what a market predicated on a, a money like Bitcoin will elucidate, you know? So mm-hmm. the techno- high quality, high technology that serves uh, our purposes and that, you know, has less of a, a negative impact on both our lives and the lives of the, our hosts, the earth. That's kind of how I see, you know, or I, how, how I hope things play out. Totally. Yeah. And I, I see that side too. Like it's, it's fundamentally true that Bitcoiners today, who inter- people who interact with the community today, change their values towards that direction. And that's uh, fundamentally a good thing. Um, but my question is, that's what Bitcoin represents today. Bitcoin is anti-state. It is hard to use. It requires personal responsibility. It requires rigorous study to understand it. But if we fast forward 50 years and Bitcoin is just boring money, I don't think people will necessarily be um, as changed with their behaviors. I think that it will slowly erode things that fiat money provides, like soft mind, soft body, soft uh, money, all that kind of stuff's related. And I think Mm -hmm. Bitcoin will change us, but more on a slow glacial pace. Like I don't see boring money um, creating religious zealots like us in the future. You know, I, I think it's more like Bitcoin's point in time, like the early internet, the early internet pioneers were hardcore and anti-state and revolution right. for the people. And then the internet turned into Facebook and Google and Amazon. And so I think we also run the risk of Bitcoin becoming that same thing in the future. And I think that's the sort of the role of the immune system in the hardliners who want to fight back. And sometimes it appears like it's an autoimmune disease attacking our own. But the role is important there because um, whether we like it or not, Bitcoin can be co-opted. It's the least corruptible thing we've ever come up with. But it is our duty to foster this technology in the direction that we want it to go. And we do need to stay vigilant there. Um, You know, I would love to know more early internet pioneers myself because the early versions of the internet and the thinkers of that time wanted something very different. And what were the mistakes along the way? Is it concentrating supply in a Coinbase? You know, is it pushing adoption at all costs, which then waters down the message? Maybe we should go slow and steady. You know, these are really important questions. And to bring it to biology, there's a theory called the Red Queen theory, which is from 
um, Alice in Wonderland, where the, the Red Queen is that like goofy lady they run into in the castle, and she she runs around all day, but she's on a treadmill. So she moves a lot, but she doesn't go anywhere. And what that what that means in biology is um, there's this equilibrium that organisms find. And let's take a, a polar bear and a seal, for example. So um, polar bears eat seals, and seals run away from polar bears. That's the game. And polar bears have to sneak up on seals to try and catch them. So all of a sudden, a polar bear becomes white. Okay, And now the polar bear can sneak up on the seals. And the polar bear eats all the seals that don't look for the white bear. And all the seals that didn't look for the white bear die off. And now all that remains are the cautious seals who look over their shoulder to see the white bear. And so the white bear had its advantage for a few years. And then equilibrium found its point again. And then the bear has to come up with a new strategy. And so that's kind of how biology goes. It's this incremental thing and it always finds homeostasis. And same thing with Bitcoin. Like, are we going to just create this new monetary system for a, a temporary moment? Humans have an advantage. The little guy has an advantage with money for the people. But then homeostasis reaches in, big power corrupts, and the system finds its own way to be uh, and Bitcoin gets co-opted again, and then it's extractive. And I've been, I've been sitting on that article for a long time. I'm not fully fleshed out in the thinking there. But it is something to be uh, vigilant about, I think. Absolutely. <clears throat> and it's an interesting thought. And it could very well be, because you know, I often wonder, are we always just kind of doomed to, you know, uh, tiptoe on the razor's edge of things? You know, is that just the nature of, reality or or civilization or the human condition that whether it's your own tiptoeing between you know you know having your life go to shit whether it's your health your relationships but you know being put together just enough to get by or be content with yourself and does that play out on on pretty much every scale no matter what the tools we use are we're just forever kind of you know because the, the the sign of a good tool is that it could be used for great benefit and for you know great destruction effectively or there's there's a there's a, a pro and con to uh, to everything that's useful right you can hammer a house uh, hammers you can build a house or you can you know hit yourself in the dick right and that that's the two sides of uh, of the coin the same coin so maybe maybe that's the case but you know the other thing i think about bitcoin in terms of its I feel like if we go to gold, we came like it was useful for a period of time because it was it emerged and it was so much better than anything that came before it. And so I think there's this space where this is where, you know, let's say economic interaction or the form of money was at. And these were gold's limitations. And so people at that time had all this space in between to kind of optimize, to explore, to really juice the benefit from that new innovation until such time that, you know, their uses for the tool caught up with the limits of the tool. And so once that happens, then they're in a situation where they say, oh, well, we want to do more than what this tool provides. You know, you move the goalpost basically. And then you start saying, well, then the human creeps back in, right? Then the, the, you know, then we put structures around that tool to try to extend it beyond what it's naturally capable of doing. And that's where we invite the trouble. And that's where we sow the seeds of, of the demise of this tool, right? That's how we kind of, uh, you know, we destroy our tools effectively. And 
if with Bitcoin, I wonder, I think we've got a lot of that kind of headroom space to go because it's so much of an upgrade from the tools we use, especially as money today. I mean, fiat is basically infinitely worse. Um, but even in terms of gold, I think that the, you know, there's a lot of room above our heads to, to go and to expand there. But there will come a time that we catch up to the limits and we, we say, hey, this thing can't do a bunch of stuff that we want to do. And we've done all that. We've, you know, we've maximized the other potential of this tool. And it's entirely possible that at that time, uh, whenever that is, 100, 200,000 years in the future, that we'll, you know, our sneaky little monkey brains will get in and say, well, why don't we tweak it this way and tweak it that way? And I think that will open the door for sowing the seeds of the demise of this tool. And perhaps that will necessitate the need for some other tool that is available to us um, or, you know, to some great innovator or, or what a process at that time. But I like, I, I'm hopeful that rather than kind of shooting ourselves in the foot pretty much right out of the gate, instead, and so we don't corrupt it early, basically, but we, we use it to its limits. And the, the trouble we'll encounter is further off in the future when we bump up against the limits and we say, hey, we want to do more with this tool. Fascinating point. And I think it's completely on, on par here. And I like to think of this, you know, stealing from Zabo is social scalability. So essentially our ability to cooperate as a species, the better we cooperate, the more complex our society, the more wealthy, the better quote our society is. And yeah, gold had a ceiling. And when we, when society wanted to press up past the glass ceiling of gold, we said, okay, well, gold doesn't facilitate global trade anymore. So we got to concentrate the supply and make paper receipts. And right. out of that evolved the demented fiat system we have today because culture passed what the money was capable of. I think that's a fantastic way to look at this. And so with Bitcoin, I think we will shatter a new glass ceiling and society has a tremendous amount of room to grow here. And that also corresponds with a question of is, is this fundamental change in culture based on money? Almost like we, we run up against the limit, we struggle. And out of that struggle with gold not working, we have Bitcoin, right? And we wouldn't have come up with Bitcoin while gold was flourishing. And so we hit right. the ceiling, we dip down into fiat land, out comes Bitcoin, and we ramp up again to a new peak. And mm -hmm. when does that peak hit, right? It feels like a massive upgrade, but maybe it's only a 100-year upgrade or a 500-year upgrade. We don't know that. But eventually, society, the culture will reap the benefits of Bitcoin and then outgrow the benefits of Bitcoin and then start putting stress on Bitcoin, potentially dementing it. And out of that crucible comes a potential future, uh, future money. Um, yeah. I think that's the only way we can look at society that also mirrors evolutionary biology or just not even evolutionary biology. Evolution itself throughout biological time, there's periods of relative stasis where pretty much nothing happens. And then there are these cataclysmic events and all of a sudden the whole bio biosphere goes, holy shit, things are changing. Time to hurry up and figure something new out because we want to survive. And that those periods of transition is where all the change, all the evolution comes from. And each time that happens, we have a more complex society in more micro niches and more advanced evolutionary strategies, like flowers looking like bees. And, you know, if you go look in biology, the, the, 
little games they play to survive are insanely creative. <laughs> and that only occurs through those, those periods of stress and, and forcing more creativity um, to be squeezed out of, out of whatever we call life. And mm -hmm. yeah, that, that, I think that type of framing, if people can zoom out and appreciate the fact that monetary system is a base, you can only build a tower so high as, as your foundation is strong, and mm -hmm. what Bitcoin is, is just a stronger foundation upon which we can build a greater monument to our civilization. Um, that's optimistic. Exactly. And that makes me feel optimistic. Me too. I'm excited here, hearing you uh, articulate it. And it, 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 it's an inescapable, if you see things in that way, to realize that you're basically the one pouring the foundation. Not to self-aggrandize you know, our role here, but basically that's the level that we're on. you know, And... Um, if we're right, I mean, this goes back to the compulsion aspect of, I think, probably a lot of the stuff you have done, your writing, your contribution to Swan and other things in the space, myself as well, is if, if seeing things through that lens, if it's accurate, how could you not be compelled uh, to somehow contribute? Because it's, it's a front row seat for perhaps the most tremendous positive change um, that the world has ever seen, that the, the, the species has ever seen. So, and I know a lot of the Bitcoiners that are listening to this are like shaking their heads like, yeah, the fuck yeah, that's why we spend so much time on this stuff. But, uh, and, and that's, that's the difficult thing that's uh, potentially, I think, so hard for people outside to see. And as a result, they see Bitcoiners as kind of cultish or over the top or, you know, just the kind of the kooky weird one. But obviously, the, the two groups are seeing it from such different perspectives. And this, after two hours, brings me to my segue into your upcoming uh, spot on Psychedelic Salon. Because <laughs> that will break into the real conversation. Um, because I'm interested in how you are going to uh, articulate kind of the different perspectives that you are seeing things from and that they, those people that are non-Bitcoiners, um, the way that they see things and how you bridge the, the divide, how you, how you can at all hope to impress upon them the scale of, of what it is you're talking to them about. Yeah, thanks for bringing it back because that is gonna be a really important thing to discuss here. Um, before I dive too deep, I'm going to run to the bathroom quick. I got to do the same. I got to do the All same. Right. All right. I'll be right back. Quick pause. That felt good. Yep. Needed that one. <laughs> been two hours, been crushing caffeine in a smoothie. <laughs> Me too. Well, not uh, in a smoothie, but a cup of coffee. There you go. Um, so recalibrating, we're talking about Psychedelic Salon upcoming podcast. There's an Agent Orange inside the Psychedelic Salon community who wants to, to orange pill the Psychonauts. I was uh, graciously tapped to fulfill that role. Asked John for a little, uh, let's stress test these ideas. We've wanted to have the conversation. Now we're back at it, talking about um, how to approach the psychedelic community from the angle of Bitcoin. Uh, we both believe fundamentally they overlap, fundamentally the psychedelically inclined are Bitcoiners, but the road to understanding that is not easy. So how can we shorten that road? What's the bridge between the two? And when I ran to the bathroom, I checked Twitter and uh, the, the greater Twitter sphere has lots of good ideas, which we can run through if we feel like it. Um, 
And I'm not exactly sure where to start besides the fact that um, I feel that both communities, I'll just riff on some thoughts here. Both communities are um, parallel in a way that they're both still fringe. They're both on a massive upsurge of popularity. They're both on a, a revolution. Um, they're both fundamentally uh, useful and very, very powerful ideas. Um, the people around them feel like uh, they just discovered a secret, a, a fundamentally true thing. They create accolades who evangelize the concepts. Um, both of them are, are powerful in a sense that you don't want to distribute this all willy-nilly. Um, these are these are important things, and um, like Bitcoiners know, you don't over-evangelize. You got to show lightly. Same with psychedelics. This isn't for everyone. Don't go dosing people who aren't aware. Um, and so, yeah, I think that just at a high level, they're very similar. I also think that the same type of people are attracted to both. I did a Twitter poll, which is obviously not uh, very scientific, but the number, the percentage of Bitcoiners on this poll, which I think a thousand some people uh, voted on was very, very high who were pro-psychedelics. Um, that's not obviously perfect, but confirms my suspicion that the overlap is large. That's been um, my experience a lot too, you know, when I speak to Bitcoiners. Yeah. And they both dissolve boundaries, which is another Terrence McKenna line, but um, the psychedelics will dissolve boundaries between self and other, between a monkey and his environment, head and heart, all these different things, yourself and culture, the mass you wear and, and, and the observer, all those things. And money and, and Bitcoin deserves the same thing. It'll dissolve the boundaries of the state. You can actually interact peer to peer. Um, and so, yeah, I think that there's just a natural overlap. We mentioned prior about how the community, the psychedelic community often wants to break away from society and sort of build a citadel. But their version of a citadel would be like a psychedelic utopia, commune, Bali havens, etc., and I think in order to achieve that, a fundamental tool is is a monetary system that is not uh, going to exclude those communities. And so, I think there's a natural pairing there. Uh, yeah, that's kind of my first shotgun uh, example or well, analysis. Let, let me let me respond with what came to mind. Um, and this this has been something I've been mulling over for a while, in because you know your first rap there. There's there so many similarities uh, between the two, which is, as you said, probably part of the reason why it draws uh, similar people, um, but also I think provides an opportunity to obviously bridge a gap between people that are in both that haven't yet uh, cross-pollinated the ideas, for, uh, as it were. But psychedelic means uh, mind manifesting, right? Uh, in, I guess in Latin, it's psyche and delos. Is that correct? I think you're still you're muted. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I think that's right. Yeah. Um, and what kind of dawned on me is that, like, what is money? Money is the mechanism from extracting novelty, from extracting imagination from the mind and it, allowing it to emerge in the world. Um, and I don't even think that's like me being esoteric or overly philosophical. I mean, it, it's... Money is what allows for the complexity of the physical world vis-a-vis -vis human interaction. And it does that because it allows for specialization, allows us to store our surplus time and all the different things that we know money does. And so in a very real way, it, money is what manifests the mind. It's what extracts from the mind 
into the real world. So from imagination to physical existence is what one of the roles and perhaps the, the most important role of money. So money is the ultimate psychedelic and money obviously is, is, uh, exists on a gradient. And as we know as Bitcoiners and as we've been discussing in this conversation, uh, there are different qualities of money and we believe that Bitcoin represents a significant um, step up and a significant upgrade in the quality of money that humans have ever had access to. And so in that way, uh, and you're free to use this in your, in your conversation if you like, but I think Bitcoin represents the, the ultimate psychedelic if we, defer, if we define it in its uh, you know, formal definition, mind manifesting. Bitcoin is going to allow for more manifestation of the mind, more manifestation of imagination in the real world than anything we've ever considered because it performs the function of money better than any form of money ever has. And so that's pretty, you know, that's pretty, uh, I don't know, that's pretty, uh, I'll, oh, say that's pretty, I'll say that's pretty one more time before I say something else. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty coherent or apt uh, comparison relationship. Uh, between those two things, because they're, they're in their nature, they're very, very uh, similar in what they do. Obviously, psychedelics are contained in the mind. So, you, you know, your mind is manifesting something that your, your mind exclusively experiences. And money is kind of the externalization of that process where, you know, the things that manifest in your mind in the imagination are able to be extracted and brought out into the world and given physical existence. I can, cool to me. I think that's a incredibly powerful analysis that I think needs to probably be fleshed out in a longer form um, yeah. for everyone to understand. But I agree. And I think it goes even um, interesting. Bitcoin takes it further because it is a synthetic commodity. It's a synthetic digital thing that doesn't physically exist. It only exists in, in uh, the ethereal space. And that allows us to do whatever we want to it. And manipulate it in whatever way and so we're also manifesting um, you know how how we want money to be used we can then go ahead and build that and so it, it, yeah it is this ineffable I don't want to use the word ethereal again but <laughs> it is and yeah it, it's it's a strange membrane that we can uh, manipulate to our advantage and if money lives in that space, I, I see something where the, the possibilities are, are more expansive, right? There's no physical limitations. We're, all, we're obviously going into this digital realm. That's, it appears that's where the homo sapien is heading, whether we download our mind to a computer or whatever. And so money in that realm is the only thing that makes sense. That, the only thing that can keep up with a society uh, who increasingly goes digital. Yeah, that's kind of my bolt-on addendum. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm trying to, I like that, that term you use, membrane. And it's really hard to put it in the proper perspective for what money in the form that Bitcoin represents will represent for us and be capable of, of doing for us or, or will be able, the cases we'll be able to use it for. Because it's almost like it gives us. You still around? 
Um, let's see. Yeah, my internet says it's going crazy, but I, I got you back. Yeah, your, your video's back now. Um, yeah, this is going to be a very poorly articulated thought, but, um, you know, it, it's, it, it seems to incentive that kind of membrane is more effective, or I think it will be more effective at incentivizing the, the extraction of the contents of our minds than anything that came previously. And the reason why I'm wrestling with it is because like I, it's, I'm finding a hard time identifying the process that underlies that or why that is. I'm, I'm sure we've touched on a lot of them in this conversation, but I'm not, you know, it's not super clear in my mind right now, but like, that's why, right? We, we think it, we, we refer to it as a better money because we know it's going to be capable of doing more of that for us. You know, it's, it's going to be a membrane through which like there'll be greater incentive and capability of extracting the contents of our mind. Um, and I guess the, the comparison would be that the money that we're forced to use now is pretty much the antithesis of that. It, it's, it's not incentivizing us to deploy our intellectual, our imaginative, our physical capital and resources to extract things from our mind. It's, it's, if anything, it's, it's putting a, like a, a dampener on it. It's caging it in. That's a really good point. And I, I see a world with Bitcoin with more entrepreneurship and more people around the world having the ability to participate in the global economy. And I think that's sort of opposite of our current fiat world where we live in these little rigid boxes. And, you know, if you want to buy oil, you have to use the right money. If you want to use PayPal from Iran, you can't. You know, there's all these weird siloed issues that prevent tremendous amounts of human capital from participating. And right. that itself also limits entrepreneurship. America is the easiest place to start a business. And it's a bunch of bullshit just to start right. the process. And if we reduce some of those barriers, uh, back to your point about this membrane that can help us manifest what's in our mind, less barriers, easier access to commerce, um, you know, a weaker state, all those type of things enable human creativity to be unleashed. And with a physical money, obviously you can only do things in one capacity. Then we made it digital. We can do a little bit more, but now we have digital and it's unlocked. It's free. And if that doesn't unlock creativity, I don't know. Like it, it has to, right. is it, is it 1% more or is it a thousand percent more? I don't know that answer, but it clearly contributes to more mind being manifested. Yeah. And actually I, I touched on a similar topic with Obi the other day from CoinFloor again. And, you know, he was just saying the internet has brought, let's say again to generalize, but has brought like the small village in Africa onto the global market. And, you know, maybe a graphic designer there or someone who's great at writing marketing copy or whatever can now bring their services to market and you get a more free flow. And this is touched on in the sovereign individual as well, more free flowing, um, economic activity basically but still we have these things that intermediate that and silo it and slow it down uh you know whether it's national currencies whether it's you know the banking system taking their fees and their percentages forex and all the siloing you just mentioned and uh you know it's going to be really amazing for i think innovation inclusivity even though you know that's a word that i know a lot of us shun but like just bringing the world online in a in a, 
on equal terms with everybody else in terms of the game that they're playing, uh, I think we're going to see a tremendous amount of innovation from that uh, because there's lots of people around the world that are hungry, that have lots of great ideas, that want to contribute, that want to build, that want to see and experience different things, and they've been cut off. You know, uh, I think we'll look back on this. Peer, well, we always look back on history and we kind of shudder, but I, I, I think our time now will be no different and perhaps, perhaps uniquely bad because we, we see such imbalances created in the world uh, because of the economic uh, system that we have and the geopolitical imbalances of power that that creates. And we've got whole segments of the world that are, you know, in, in abject poverty, really. And there's some bright spots. You know, China's been lifted out of uh, poverty over the last 20 years, and that's good from their perspective. Uh, but, you know, I think in hindsight, this is going to look like even more of a shit show than it looks like to many of us today. Totally. It's almost as if we have superseded that glass ceiling that the gold transition to fiat has provided, which causes more chaos. And when I think about um, from like a a civil rights or uh, just making the world better, more equitable for more people, they say that the cell phone camera did more for African-American civil rights in the U.S. than anything else. And I fundamentally believe that's true. And I think we'll look back and say Bitcoin was the most powerful civil rights transition period, um, dwarfing everything prior. Because if a woman in a country where women can't open bank accounts has a bank account in her phone, what untold spillover effects does that provide? And you you can just do a million examples like that. But if you give people access to their own money, their savings account doesn't get destroyed. Um, that's going to do so much more for these impoverished communities than trying to legislate uh, wealth redistribution. Um, we already know that that doesn't work. Like we go to Africa and we throw GMO soybeans and corn and wheat at them, and we're just shocked that they don't turn into flourishing entrepreneurial societies. Like that 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 doesn't work. And mm-hmm. What does work is empowering them with tools and education and self-sustaining processes that they own and take ownership over, and then they can emerge. It it has to be emergent. Otherwise, the change is, again, ethereal. And so if we we provide financial tools, aka Bitcoin and related apps, you know, the, the civil rights movement type people should be all over this. And some people are starting to wake up for it, but... It's also a get rich quick scheme wrapped up in a technological revolution, wrapped up in a who knows what. It's a slippery one yeah. to, to grasp. Well, I put out a few days ago my chat with Alex Svetsky and Zay, and, uh, Zay Bitcoin Zay, uh, Isaiah Jackson, author of Bitcoin Black America. And, you know, that's basically what he's saying. You know, he's saying stop, all this protesting, all this rabble rousing, this, you know, all this energy expended in the wrong direction. You know, get, get focused on what is the core lever, uh, driver of, of these problems and fix that first and see what solutions materialize and then work on things uh, higher level from there. And I, you know, I think most of us in this, uh, in this space would probably agree with that. Um, there was one thing I was just thinking about that I wanted to ask you. What the hell was it? Um, no, it's, it's not. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> um, well, man, I don't want to shut it down before I remember that. So think of, tell me, 
what's going on in your world in terms of you mentioned you were working on uh, a, a piece for a while now. Anything else, like any other writing that we should be eagerly anticipating? Yeah, the one I'm grappling with right now is um, after reading The Fourth Turning, which is a book about demography and how time is cyclical rather than linear and how there are archetypes that develop in each generation and they go in a circle, blah, blah, blah. And I'm essentially looking at that book and I'm either going to write a piece specifically about demography and how now is a potent time and how Bitcoin plays into it, or I'm going to write a piece that has that combined with the sovereign individual thesis ending of a 500 year cycle at the same time as long-term credit cycles a la Dalio are ending. And so there's sort of a perfect storm of long-term cyclical changes that are all converging right now. Mm-hmm. And that might be a separate article, but that's kind of what I'm playing with. It, it's, it's a time where, where change is ripe to be had. And there's other previous points in history where um, events occur and people want to make change, but change is not accepted, so nothing actually changes. But now is at a point where a change is, is going to be uh, occurring because people know something's wrong and it's bad enough to where people are willing to change. And so it's an important time to grab history by the horns and steer it in your direction. Otherwise, someone else will. Yeah. Do you put any stock into, I guess, the more many ancient cultures around the world viewed time through a, a more cyclical lens than we, you know, we kind of have a linear view of things today. And they also characterized um, this, the periods within that cycle as, um, or periods within that cycle were characterized with certain uh, attributes or characteristics or unfoldings. Do you put any stock in that kind of stuff? I do. And it, it seems woo wooey, but I think it's actually pretty grounded thinking. Um, first of all, yes, all ancient societies viewed, not all, many ancient societies that we have records of viewed, viewed systems and cycles. Um, and if you look at nature, which we emerged out of, we are a part of, everything's cyclical. There are seasons, you know, there are long and slow term seasons with weather patterns and organisms and life and death. It all forms a circle. And so the idea that our human life is somehow different from everything else in nature is just human hubris. Like, come right. on. Um, and then things like uh, the sovereign, or sorry, like the fourth turning, he studies the guy who wrote it, uh, I guess two guys, but um, Neil Howe, who I've been pestering on Twitter for months trying to get him to engage with us. Um, <laughs> he, he's been studying cycles for 500 years. And if you read the fourth turning, it's, it's not, uh, it becomes very clear that it is cyclical, and there, you know, the, the last 500 years, they all fit into neat patterns, and of course, it makes sense. And so, I, I very much believe it. It's not a, a rigid science; it's not perfect. Yeah. But the biggest thing that uh, sort of hit it home for me is that the historical conditions at a time when, let's say, we're millennials, when we were born, there were historical conditions of history. History imprinted itself on us, on our generation. And then our generation grows up, all kind of having the same upbringing. So we sort of have the same values, whatever. We grow up and then we imprint ourselves on history. And then the younger generations who got our influence go on and do it again. And so that forms a cycle that he observes in what's called the saculum, 
which is an old term. I forgot which group came up with the term, but it essentially means a long human life. So these cycles start over every 80 to 100 years. And part of it's because no one's alive that remembers the last great war. And by the time everyone who went to war dies, we're ready to go to war again because we forgot how bad it was. And so it's so human. And yeah, yeah, I, I do. I do believe in the so, cycle. Do you have any sense, uh, and in particular to the cycle that you're making the case that we're now coming to the end of or in the midst of the end of, uh, do you have any sense based on your inquiry into uh, the, the various cycles that are converging where we might be in terms of a timeline? Like, will this cycle be ending for the next 10, 20, 50 years? Or is it, you know, any sense of timeline? Yeah, good question. So I'll give you the, the current cyclum we're in. Uh, again, 80 to 100 years for these cycles. Each 80 to 100 year cycle is broken into four turnings. And so according to his theory, uh, the last end of the cycle was 1929 to 1945. So that was the previous fourth turning starting in 1945, post-war America. That is the beginning of a new cycle. And so 1945 to like 1963, that's the first turning, that's spring, that's maximum order. And then 1963 to 1983 is, is the, the revolution. That's the civil rights movement, psychedelics, all that kind of stuff. And then the third turning is the unraveling, which is like the 80s up through about 2008. And 2008 marks the end of the next cycle, uh, or sorry, the beginning of the fourth turning. So the last quadrant of the current cycle. So from 2008 to 2020, we're, um, you know, we're nearing the end of one of these 80 to 100 year cycles. And the fourth turning is the point where um, shit's really bad. We know it's bad and we're willing to change. And that kicks off with a crisis. Most people say 2008. And then it hits a climax, which I'm arguing is 2020. This is pandemic. This is um, George Floyd in the fallout. This is economic fallout from this crisis. And then, you know, usually between two to five years after that um, peak crisis mode, there is a resolution and then the system starts over again. And so based on this model, we're, you know, two to 10 years away from the cycle ending. And after that, we'll be in a sort of a period where we're sick of fighting, we're ready to rebuild, uh, we're more team players. Um, yeah, we're willing to make sacrifices. And in years past, that would be like the baby boomers. Um, I, I shouldn't say the baby boomers. The in post-war America, the old generation who mimics the baby boomers, that analog, they gave a bunch of wealth and they gave all the young people houses, essentially. That's how the distribution happened. And so if we map it again, there will be a, a transition with the boomers who finally decide to give up some wealth and power. And the, the millennials, which are the hero archetype, um, go to battle selflessly and rebuild. Um, but it's also a period where we give up the most control. We let leaders lead. We let leaders make mistakes and we're willing to try new shit and see what happens. Um, but it's also a time where the stake gets much stronger and that's a scary thing. And so the article is essentially a warning sign saying, look to history. Uh, it's not necessarily good when the cycle continues. It can end in crisis or um, something much better. And so it's a cautionary tale saying things are changing. We're coming to the end. Um, you know, be mindful of the transition and build the future you want.
Nice. I, amidst all this, I really wish that more people had a historical perspective. Not, you know, that's a fairly complex one and you'd have to be, you know, kind of do a bit of research and digging to put together one as, as, as concise, concise and robust as that. But just a lot of the things we see today, whether it's a social breakdown, whether it's the failure of the paper money, you know, many of these things have occurred before and we're seeing a lot of the same both reactions to them and resistance to them. And, you know, I think we'd all be better served if, uh, you know, people had a little bit better understanding of history. But my last question for you, this is probably a horrible question to end on because it's a little bit uh, complex, but, or could be, but all that being said, and kind of knowing that these processes happen, one of the things that often, you know, I look at is, and we've talked about behavior change through Bitcoin, and we've got this, psych, this larger cycle operating on everybody that's in this circumstance. What is it you think that turns people's behavior uh, around? And I, just for a bit more context, I think in so many places and people today, there's such, I guess, destructive thinking. Um, that seems intent on tearing things down and um but i in my opinion in a non-constructive way or in a perhaps in a not orderly enough way um it's kind of like the analogy i often use is you you look at your house right you got a window busted out you got a leak in the roof the toilet doesn't work and you need new hardwood flooring most people and it's the only house you have, and it's the only option you have to place to stay. I feel like a segment of society today says, tear that fucker down. And the wrecking ball comes in and it's torn down. And then they're all standing outside in the rain saying, okay, we need to build a new house now. Versus putting up some scaffolding, fixing the, the uh, hole in the roof, doing the hardwood floors, you know, kind of being more methodical while maintaining your ability to actually use the house so that you're not stuck out in the rain while you fix it. Like what in your mind, what do you see as, as being powerful enough to turn around the types of behavior and mentality that we're seeing today? Yeah, I think it's a good question. And I think it, it's, it's, uh, it's very evident in the social climate. And my belief is that it comes from a lack of hope, a lack of optimism. If you don't see a way that you feel that you can positively impact your future, then you seek blood, you seek vengeance, it's apathy, it's existentialism, it's all those things which are deeply embedded in the extreme left, the loud left right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's unwarranted to feel um, pessimistic. You know, that, that's the whole system is giving us signs of something's, something's wrong. And so speaking personally, Bitcoin was the thing that provided optimism. And I needed that, you know, I, I don't think I would be as good of a person to my wife. Um, I don't think I'd be a good a person to my friends or anywhere near the potential that I may or may not have if I didn't feel optimistic about the future. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's such a force multiplier. I now want to save more. I want to be, you know, I want to treat my body better and eat better. And I cared about those things, but now all of a sudden there's a reason to, a catalyst that made me see the future differently and that makes behavior change easy but if, if you don't see an end in sight burn it the fuck down yeah 
something to concentrate your focus, I guess, in a positive way. Because I think we we may have been somewhat similar and owing to our backstories, I think, you know, that's been borne out. But, you know, I've always uh, uh, highly valued my health and always been interested in intellectual pursuits and all that kind of stuff. But they were almost like disparate. They weren't focused on a clear objective. And then when Bitcoin came along, you know, it, it kind of brought it all into focus and then also had that thing on the horizon that was the hope piece that brought it. Maybe that's what brought it all together. It's saying there's a reason to do all this now. There's a reason to dedicate yourself to these things because of what is available on the horizon. And, you know, I think you nailed it on the head. And that's probably a great place to end where so many people in the world today sense um, that, that hopelessness. You know, they look out on the world and they don't see how it could be better. Their own situations are very difficult and there's no end in sight. And I think once you sprinkle in a little hope, once people realize that there is hope to be had, then that could be a pretty transformative uh, force in itself. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's literally just thinking long-term. Yeah, and, and being allowed to think that way, right? Yeah, it's being impossible if you're, you can't pay your bills and you don't see an alternative and the TV is telling you everything's burning down and no, none of your friends have a way out. Yeah. And again, to be expected, right? Like for, if you, um, what's the saying? Like, um, something about like when you have nothing left to lose, right? You like, of course, why not burn everything down? If you're already destitute, basically, you know, you've got nothing to people that have nothing to lose are, are, it's almost rational to want everything to be destroyed because then you get to start again. Anyways, whole nother subject, but uh, man, it's always a pleasure to speak. Do you want to shill anything or direct people? When, when are you doing the podcast? Is it a set date already? Yeah, it's uh, a week from today. So I think that's July 13th. And the way they format it is they do live podcasts for their community. So if you're part of the Psychedelic Salon, you can be live in this big Zoom and ask questions and stuff. And then they'll package oh, cool. that up and put it out to the public later on the Psychedelic Salon's podcast feed. Oh, dude, I'm definitely going to be in that group. How do I, do I just have to sign up to their, uh, like, I think they have a Patreon. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, if anyone's interested in that topic, I highly recommend the podcast. What's interesting about this podcast, it's curated by Lorenzo, I think it's Lorenzo Haggerty. Oh, Haggerty. He's an old school psychedelic guy. I think he's in his low seventies now. And he started this 15 some years ago. And so many people have sent recordings in from various lectures from the 50s to today. Long lost lectures recorded on a physical cassette tape, which he then cataloged and digitized. And so his library has stuff that you can't get anywhere else. Um, I listened to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of this stuff. Lots of old Terrence tapes come through him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That would have been lost into the archives. He wrote a book about the internet too. Uh, Lorenzo? Are you familiar? Yeah. I'm not familiar. It was, it was an interesting book. Yeah, I read it several years ago, but uh, I'll have to get the name for the show notes or something. But yeah, he wrote a book about, you know, the transformative power of the internet basically in the early days. Interesting. That's another thing with the psychedelic elders is they were very cutting edge with the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, Terrence, very Tim, cutting Tim edge Leary. with... Yeah, all those guys. And so the communities yeah. have a, a tremendous overlap that the young psychonauts might not even realize. So that yeah. might be an interesting angle. 
Uh, in terms of shilling, I would just say, if any of this is interesting, come say hi on Twitter. I've got a medium. I've got a website under my name. Um, yeah, I also work for Swan. So if you want to get into Bitcoin and you want an easy way to automatically accumulate Bitcoin, swanbitcoin.com, you connect your bank account, you pick how much you want to buy at what frequency, i.e. 50 bucks a week, 100 bucks a month, whatever you want to do. And then we auto buy it for you at a very low fee. You can also auto withdraw it to your own cold storage or you can leave it with our custodian if that suits you. Um, yeah, it's a Bitcoin only company. Good people there. Swan's killing it, man. I love what they're doing. Same. I feel very fortunate. L laser focused and just, just the right amount of playfulness and professionalness and the way that they're engaging the community, the content they're putting out. It's, uh, I'm, I'm excited for them. Same. And the leadership you. team is crushing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, this is great. I really appreciate I really appreciate the time, and uh, you always stimulate my mind. I have 100 new ideas. I'm going to have to re-listen to this and take some notes before next week. <laughs> Hopefully it's well, out man, by then. <laughs> yeah, I, I always love our chats, too, and I was super pumped when you hit me up the other day for, uh, for another round. So uh, I look forward to the next one already. Good luck on uh, Psychedelic Salon, and I'm sure we'll be speaking soon. You bet. Thanks, John. Hey, brother.